think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, it's episode 68 of The Boys in Short Pants, the 69th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Nathan Rainbow. And we have a very special guest with us today, uh, Tom German. Uh, yeah, my name's Tom German. Uh, I'm a lawyer. Uh, I served in the Navy for about 12 years, got out, went to law school, uh, practiced as a commercial litigator in Nova Scotia, and as well as was a federal crown agent, uh, prosecuting narcotic for uh, Mr. Harper when he was leader of the opposition. And I was director of parliamentary affairs in the attorney general's office when the Federal Accountability Act was introduced, and uh, was counsel to the Minister of Public Safety. And I now uh, live in, in PEI, rather. Which is a particularly salient experience for what we are to discuss today. Uh, I cannot, frankly, imagine a better guest to, <laughs> yeah, the, the <laughs> to discuss these matters. Yeah, the coincidence to be in Ottawa, like, when we could record, was just like, many thanks, to, many thanks to friend of the show, Paul Wilson, uh, also of the Harper government, and more recently of Carleton's political management program for, for setting this up for us. Yes, thank you. Yes, there's certainly a lot of lawyers in Ottawa, but lawyers with the exact political experience that helps sort of to, to put a lot of insight from the other side uh, of it, I think will be incredibly uh, enlightening in this case. So we wanted to start off, we, we haven't recorded in two weeks just because it's been uh, it's been an incredibly busy couple of weeks for, for pretty much everyone around Ottawa and we have not had the time to, to have a, a lengthy sit down in some time. Uh, so I wanted to just catch up on developments that have happened since the last time we spoke, which was a couple days after the Globe and Mail story broke. Correct. Yeah. So since then, a lot of stuff has happened, as it turns out. Uh, the Justice Committee had a handful of meetings, uh, one of them quite significant, uh, two of them quite significant. Uh, the Crickle Privy Council appeared before the committee last week. Is that right? Okay, just time is going in such a strange, <laughs> dilated fashion these days, I can't quite tell. And, of course, uh, the former Attorney General herself, uh, Judge Wilson raybould appeared uh, Wednesday evening, uh, the 27th, uh, here in Ottawa, which was, we will get to it. Um, Jerry Butts, the f- now former principal secretary to the prime minister, resigned for sort of hazily expressed reasons. Um, <laughs> and he has actually written to the Justice Committee today, which is Thursday, the 28th, uh, asking to appear. Uh, he had two commas after sincerely, <laughs> which I thought was clearly this was not vetted by the comms shop. <laughs> Interesting. I don't know really what to make of that. Uh, so really, it's kind of two big appearances we want to talk about is, is Wernick's testimony and uh, Joe DeWilson-Raybould's testimony. I think it's also worth noting the sort of back, not quite back room, actually, the very public wrangling that's gone over what is the best venue for this whole about to be yeah. investigated, to be examined. Um, so I think we'll, we'll probably just start off with the, the politics of it there, and then we'll, we'll segue into the, the, the more analytical part of the show. Um, so over the last couple of weeks, the NDP has asked for a public inquiry. Uh, the Conservatives have wanted to keep it at the Justice Committee, uh, which uh, I think everyone has been more or less happy to do as a sort of status quo option, though because the Liberals have a majority on that committee, it's proven to be difficult uh, just because whenever motions come up to you know invite witnesses, the liberal majority has tended to vote it down. I can't think of an exception to that in the last couple of weeks, um, though they did when the committee first met after uh, this whole thing broke. Uh, they met, and while a it was supposed to be a meeting about a conservative motion, it was immediately and improperly, in my view, 
hijacked by the liberals because the chair recognized a liberal who was introducing another motion, which was, I think, our Hansard experts, well, or, you know, the, or, the or Brian and Bosk. The benefits of having yeah. the chair uh, on your on Yeah, your and points of order should probably have been raised there, but in the heat of the moment, I think people forget. Sure. Uh, but or, or they're just too polite, the, the classic Canadian uh, Canadian flaw. Um, so... Anyway, so that's that's obviously there have been some fairly explosive meetings that have been fairly significant in the last couple of weeks. So it hasn't been you know it's totally imperfect. Uh, I wanted to bring up the public inquiries uh, aspect of this because yeah. it's it's been called for by the NDP. Uh, the Conservatives supported an NDP motion, so they're at least open to the idea. The Liberals have seemed to be not so open to the idea. Um, a public inquiry is called on the Inquiries Act, um, and basically you get a judge to chair, and then they, they come in and, and do a lot of investigative work with substantial subpoena powers, etc. How? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, see, the challenge with the Public Inquiries Act is that everything is going to be sort of, will be put on hold. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I do think there is the one, and in many ways, a, a public inquiry for stalls or forecloses right. any further study at the Justice Committee. Right. I think Justice Committee is a good scene-setting place in order to get some of the basic facts and evidence out yeah. uh, uh, under some control, uh, the control of perjury. Uh, well, well perjury before, Sorry, yes. Lying to, par- lying to a parliamentary committee is not perjury. It's contempt of parliament. Yes. Right. It's only if the witness is sworn in that it's perjury. Yes. Which, which is looking increasingly like it should become standard practice as, as in this matter. As the ethics committee learned last year, it's actually quite high a bar uh, to find contempt yes. of, of a parliamentary committee. Um, we, there was a whole situation with uh, some uncooperative witnesses that options were examined. Um, but it, it seemed like the bar is quite, quite high. Um, the other thing, and I forgot to mention this, is the Ethics Commissioner investigation. Yeah, and I think that's a wholly inappropriate tool. Yeah. I mean, people seem to be rely- looking at the Ethics Commissioner because this is about some form of ethics and right. rule-breaking. The reality is, is the Ethics Commissioner doesn't study ethical matters. Right. The Ethics Commissioner studies conflicts of interest. Yes. He has only those powers included in the Conflict of Interest Act. And we're not talking about a conflict of interest here. We're talking about an inappropriate exercise of power. There's also one plausible case, particularly with respect to the clerk, as to whether or not the Public Sector Integrity Commissioner should be engaged, um, who does supervise public servants and the clerk ultimately, and all the deputies mm-hmm. are ultimately public servants. So there may be a venue there, but, you know, frankly, I don't see the ethics commissioner mm-hmm. as auth- offering very much. There's a front. very narrow slice of this whole thing where yeah. the, there might be a conflict, but frankly, it, I think the liberals have been, and, and perhaps this was a, I mean, it sounds like it, the, the investigation is on the ethics commissioner's own initiative. Yeah. So perhaps there was no way to forestall this. Uh, but it, the liberals now at this point are, are saying, well, we'll let him do his job. But We're, as you point out, it's a very narrow yeah. conflict of interest frame, and he's only examining under Section 9 yeah. of the Interest Act, which prohibits using your position to influence another person it's, to make an improper or improperly further another person's private interest. But the other thing is, that, and this is the important thing to remember, that furthering your political inf- interest is perfectly permissible. Yeah. Right. And that's not the way the code that he is investigating, the Coder Act, Act. Act that he's investigating under is written. But it's also, as, as we've seen with the Agricon investigation and others, one, the investigation is conducted entirely behind closed doors. Yeah. And it can take somewhere in the range of eight months to a year for that investigation well, to be complete. The which Raj would Raywell push us, investigation was called last, 
early last April, I believe, or late last March, and there is still no Ab- absolute there. silence yeah. on that. So that's politically convenient for the liberals to say, oh, the ethics commissioner is going to take care of all of this. He's an yes. officer of parliament where he is investigating one very narrow aspect of this. Mm-hmm. He is doing it without any sort of oversight until the very, very end when he issues um, his report, which would be after the rise of the next election. And yeah. technically speaking, uh, because he's doing this on his own initiative, he could decide not to issue a report. Sure. I think it would be ludicrous. Thank you, and an Thank undermi- you Duff Conacher. Yes, it would be an, a ridiculous undermining of his own position as the conflict commissioner to investigate a sitting prime minister and decide that no one needs to know what he saw. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, and having had the opportunity to sit on uh, with Mr. Dion in a few agency head meetings, I don't think he goes silent on something like mm-hmm. this. He will articulate some finding mm-hmm. um i just as say but he's also very conscious of the scope of his authority yes in my but, rightly yeah. right i think it's it's entirely appropriate for him to be very conservative in how he draws his authority because officers of parliament are you know creatures of parliament and should see themselves in that light so to mention what i see as the final venue is the rcmp investigation that the right. conservatives called for today um, and I'll note the sections of the criminal code that they um, that Andrew Shear stated in his letter, which was 423.1-1, um, which is intend to provoke fear in the attorney general. That's not what it's called, but that's the, the, the substance of it. Is that like the alarming the queen <laughs> it's, one? It's not the alarming the queen one that's since uh, been removed. Or By the former attorney general. Um, and well, in her head as Minister of Justice. Oh, well. 139.2. And that's, yeah, sorry, that's the other one I was looking for. Uh, it was 139.2, um, which is the improper... Uh, so obstruction of justice um, uh, in a manner that... Uh, dis- uh, sorry, to obstruct, pervert, or defeat the course of justice. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's an attempt. You don't actually have to do it. Right. You only have to attempt to do it. So what do, we, what do we make more broadly of the likelihood of RCMP investigating this matter... Uh, as as number one and number two, if they were to investigate, would it be publicly known or would it likely be a very quiet investigation? I think we're early stages. Um, from what I saw yesterday in Ms. Wilson-Raybould's testimony, I, you know, I think the section 436, I think it is, um, is a reach. Um, I think it's going to be difficult to show that there was an intention to to cause her to fear uh, or that, in fact, she did. In fact, you know, yesterday she portrayed a, a woman who was very steadfast and knew what she knew, knew what she should do and did do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, obstruction of justice, though, and the attempt to obstruct, pervert or defeat the course of justice, that strikes me as a much more fruitful area of inquiry. Mm-hmm. But... You know, I, I say I think it's early days, and we indeed have more to hear from Ms. Wilson Rabel with yeah. respect to from her uh, Time is removal yeah. to her speaking to cabinet last week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, I, I say I think that's early days. Now, would you hear about a, an investigation? Well, typically the RCMP do not announce uh, they're carrying out investigations. They're um, there's usual processes to acknowledge the existence of the investigation. The practical reality of these things, though, is that something like this, particularly where the scope is going to be so so wide, where they're going to be interested in electronic communications, mm-hmm. um, 
there's going to have to be some fairly significant interviewing and uh, seeking of warrants. Um, and so just as in well, the Norman case, when I think there's a lot of, there are common issues here, um, you know, it's going to get out, I suspect. So it won't be announced, but people will know about it. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it'll get into the like public. Like Warren Costello, for instance. I mean, your memory is certainly longer than mine. <laughs> your memory is certainly longer than mine. But the, the sort of parallel I'm thinking of, or I've, I've thought of as this is discussed, is the investigation into what was effectively insider trading that occurred during the, was it 2006 election? Yes. Against the finance minister's office, being Ralph Goodell at the time? Yeah. Um, where that became public during the election or just before the election period and eventually was essentially deemed not fruitful. Um, but the optics of being in, having your finance minister investigated for... Especially that particular government. Or your finance minister <laughs> or his office or whoever the investigation was targeted at, um, investigated during the election period, certainly so was... Not, reasonably politically yeah, toxic. Yeah, not, not a good comms day, for no. sure. Yeah. Well, they will be in a situation sometimes where it becomes such common knowledge and the speculation about what is happening is so wide that the RCMP feels obliged to put a fence around mm-hmm. uh, what is being discussed. And usually, I, I, I expect that would be the only circumstance yeah. in which you get the RCMP uh, making those sorts of comments. Or if they make filings in court that have to be publicly sure. To circle back to the public inquiry, which I think we, we sort of touched on yeah. and then and sort of went around the block. Um, so as, as you said, I, I think, as you say, it really does shut down some mm-hmm. of the other more public processes. So the Justice Committee would probably have to put this on hold and go do something else or turn it into more of an academic exercise in, of, you know, what are the limits of the Stockross principles, etc. Um, but I think obviously when people say public inquiry, the word that then you sort of hear is Gomery, right? The the Gomery Commission in 2004? Right. Yes. Or the McDonald Commission that led to the creation of, of CSIS. Right. Um, barn, and I, barn burning and, and, and all that. Yeah, for the barn in Quebec. So I, I actually think that ultimately we may be in a public inquiry situation. Mm-hmm. Be, and not and where I, why I think we may be there is that might be the best vehicle to establish a body which can have an informed discussion, not necessarily about the events here, but about the way this should work. Right. Um, you know, the choice to create a director of public prosecutions uh, was in many ways intended to create statutorily that which existed as a matter of practice. Right. Um, even before the FAA, you didn't call public uh, the prosecutor. You didn't give political direction uh, to prosecutors. You didn't have conversations. And one of the things that astonished me uh, yesterday in Ms. Wilson-Raybould's testimony was the statement that uh, Mr. Bouchard from PMO had had a conversation with the prosecutor in the file. Right. Uh, that you know, was beyond <laughs> the pale. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, before, and I think that that covers off sort of what the, the different angles here that, that can sort of go forward. I think before we... we segue into the, the testimony of both uh, of Michael Warnick and of Jody Rebold. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the development of the FAA and sort of how, what are the sort of moving parts 
legally here that that are at issue because this was referred to in the testimony at one point when ms uh, wilson rabel is not a fan of the law was (laughs) quoting butts to say this was harper's law i'm not a fan of this law yeah Yeah. so what what was the law that he was sort of referring to at that point so the federal accountability act created the director of public prosecutions act it was one of the sub chapters Mm -hmm. in the faa uh it resulted from a promise that was made during the 2006 election campaign and I think it's probably fair to say that most of the FAA arose as a conservative response to the issues surrounding the Gomery inquiry right. and the findings that were made in the Gomery inquiry. That having been said, um, I think that most of the F- of the DPP Act is literally a crystallization of the practices and procedures that existed as a matter of common law in dealing with the prosecution service. Um, as I say, you don't give political direction uh, to prosecutors. You keep them as a neutral arm's length agency mm-hmm. uh, from political actors. Now, the one addition to there, because it didn't exist beforehand, is this vehicle by which the attorney general can give direct how the attorney general and the DPP communicate. You know, Section 13, as Ms. wilson Rapel referred to, you know, requires the DPP to advise the attorney general whenever something of uh, general public interest, I think is the phrase, hmm. um, is going to occur. And advise beforehand. And then Section 14 allows her her to respond uh, to that. Um, in addition, Section 10 allows the Attorney General to give proactive direction. So that vehicle of communication, of official communication and formal communication didn't exist before the DPP Act. And lastly, what it requires is that this communication be in public with one bracket around that and be in public through the gazetting process. Right. Now, there is a section that I acknowledge in the DPP Act that says where it's in the public interest, uh, the attorney general can refu- or refrain from uh, publishing the directive in the gazette right away. But that would strike me as a pretty unusual matter. And, and it would also, I think, engage the DPP's judgment about the public interest. Okay. Um, so. so from there, do we want to go to the, the Michael Wernick testimony? You have one question. I, yeah, I just have one question. So on- online, there was an article circulating at the time, or of, uh, there was an article circulating online that was published at the time, and it was Baird's remarks um, in regards to this legislation, because as we recall, Baird was the, uh, I believe, president Tre- of the Treasury Board yeah, exactly. at the time. Yeah. And he and it was effectively the first bill the Harper government did. Yeah, it was C two. C C two. Yeah, C one was I'm sure something financial, some yes. sort of housekeeping measure. Yeah. Um, and his statement was very specific in regards to the dual hat of the Minister of Justice and Attorney General, and he spoke about or was quoted about referring to this as sort of a measure in order to ensure uh, reduced partisan tampering in the role of the DPP. But it, it seems like this approach is sort of different than the UK and others who've just split those. It seems like we sort of conceded that we wanted to keep the AG and the Minister of Justice together, um, but instead we were going to establish more formal um, safeguards around our public prosecutors. Is, is that sort of a correct interpretation of things? I think so. Um, you know, and I... I guess I just, I mean, Dean Dodek has written about this, about the require the, the good practice of separating the AG from the Minister of Justice. Um, I think, though, 
the reality is there are a number of ministers who are statutory decision makers. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's anything special about that. And I don't see why you need to to hive that role out of cabinet. Um, But what I do see is very clearly, you know, the need to crystallize that relationship and 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 was very much in favor of the idea of of the DPP as a standalone uh, a standalone agent uh, sure. and statutorily recognized. So, so okay. So from there, I think we'll, we'll want to talk about uh, Michael Warnick's testimony at the Justice Committee last week, which I think raised a, quite a few eyebrows. Uh, the testimony itself was quite interesting, um, and we will come to that. I think we'll have to start with his his prologue or his sort of uh, introductory remarks where he spoke at length about his concerns about the state of discourse and how his fears about how there would be political assassinations. And uh, am I missing anything? Those were kind of the, the two big things. Um, well, oh, and that uh, par- as parliamentarians, uh, the members of the Justice Committee yes. should condemn remarks made by a senator uh, at the United We Roll Yellow Vest rally uh, on Parliament Hill, I think the day before. So that was quite uh quite controversial because there is a convention and well sort of articulated guidelines by privy council office governing what public servants should and should not say in front of parliamentary committees and sort of offering your broad considerations on on the state of discourse in canada is not really covered no and i mean the reason it's not covered in part um based on pco's guidance is it's sort of like if you read the rules for Monopoly, they don't tell you not to take all the money from the bank um, because it's presumed... They tell you how you get money from the bank in other ways, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. Like, they, they, don't, they don't enumerate all the things you can't do or should not do when well, playing They the don't game. tell them to show up wearing clothes either. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so that, that was some people's defense of it, saying, well, it says here's what they should say about policy matters and the scope in which they should talk about policy... That's because that's envisioned as the goal for having public servants yeah. testify before parliamentary committees. It is not envisioned that uh, that public servants will be sharing their personal musings on anything, frankly. Yeah. I cannot imagine a moment in clause-by-clause review of given any, any legislation at hand where MPs turn to the officials at the end of the table and say, um, what, what's the department opinion of this? Let me let me just tell you my personal opinion first, and then I'll tell you the department's position on this legislation. Like, it's just, it's reasonably unheard of. Yeah, and I think it's sort of consistent with remarks he's made in other places in the sense that I think he has a, a broad view of the clerk's place in the Canadian Public Service and of the place of the Canadian Public Service, for that matter. Uh, that's not to defend the comments, which I, I do think were inappropriate and, and crossed the line from what the clerk really should and should not be doing. Uh, especially in front of a parliamentary committee uh, when he's answering to parliament, uh, especially because he doesn't have a minister in the conventional sense, the prime minister to some degree, but I think he sort of, as I said, sort of takes a wide view of of what the clerk's role is. Um, There was some discussion over whether it was okay or not to say that it was a partisan appearance. I, I tend to think it was quite political, and there were certainly some moments that I thought were remarkably partisan. There was one point in his remarks, he said that uh, Carolyn Bennett, the Minister of Indigenous Affairs, or uh, Crown Indigenous Relations as it now is, 
Was- and no one in Canada was working harder towards reconciliation than her, which is really more effusive than any public servant should should really be uh, with regard to to minister, let alone one that is not their own minister. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a little odd. Well, and the general attestation about the good intentions of you know the various ministers he's dealt with struck me as odd. Yes. What struck me as odd, and, and the reason why I might characterize it, I would characterize it as partisan, is the fact that the musings were entirely off topic. Right. That's really <laughs> it. I mean, that that that's kind of, if he had been asked specifically, what do you think of Carolyn Bennett and her efforts towards reconciliation, then okay, that I could see that being at least germane. Uh, <laughs> well, if the assistant secretary who appeared the what, a few days later mm-hmm. testifying about these issues regarding so you know Facebook and the like, uh, who said these were the personal opinions of the clerk yes. and not uh, right. the, the their findings, yes. if he'd been giving that kind of evidence, which was on topic with the study and comes from a place of expertise, um, I might I've got a different view. Right. But in that context, no. Yeah. Okay, that is, yeah, I think people were, were very snippy about the word partisan being applied to the clerk. And there is a long history of concerns about, I think it's important to sort of distinguish, though it is it is sort of a fuzzy distinction between partisanship and politicization of the clerk. I think, uh, and we've talked about this before, but uh, Michael Pitfield, who was Trudeau Sr.'s longtime clerk, was removed by Joe Clark after his caucus said, there's no way we can trust this guy to sort of run you know a pc government behind the scenes and they removed him uh, and then he was reinstated by trudeau when he came back which i think sort of speaks volumes uh, and i mean there's been a little bit of that under this government uh, most notably with mendelssohn yeah. um who has been parachuted can in you tell us who mendelssohn is <laughs> matthew mendelssohn um, whose position is, I can't remember the title exactly, but it's Head of Results and Delivery with yeah, BCO. Yeah, he's an assistant Secretary or a deputy. Secretary, yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, but is a former deputy minister once upon a time, um, but is seen largely as a liberal partisan who was uh, parachuted into the upper echelons of PCO and seen initially, although this perhaps is no longer the case um, because he has had a limited public profile since, um, as sort of being groomed to be the successor to yes. uh, Wernick. Well, it seems like the Deliverology thing is kind of falling out of favor. Uh, well, I haven't heard of it in two yeah. years. <laughs> we had a great episode with... Um, Rachel Curran. With Rachel Curran about that some time yeah. ago. Um, no, but yeah, that, so that I think has a lot to do with that, perhaps. But no, uh, and also, actually, I, while I was looking into the sort of history of, of, of perhaps o- over-eager clerks... Um, Wayne Wouters came up in his response to uh, Kevin Page's questioning about uh, was it the fighter costs? Yes. I, yeah, it was like yeah. the, the F-35. Yeah. yeah. So that, I mean, there is a history of this. It's really not like out of the ordinary or somehow it, you're not Trump for saying it, which seems to be kind of the subtext of every time liberals criticize anyone for doing anything these days is you're Trump. Um, so I, I think you, you can do this and not be Trump, in fact. So there is that. So I think that... That will take us from the prologue uh, to the substance of his remarks, which I think were actually quite interesting. Is, do you guys want to take us off on that? So uh, the thing that struck me from his remarks, which in, in as we look, compare him as Wilson-Raybould's remarks as well, is there's no contradiction there. There's actually right. no contradiction in the factual statements in the two remarks. Mm-hmm. There's contradictions about characterization of what those things mean, mm-hmm. you know, he says his conduct was appropriate. She says the conduct was not. Mm-hmm. 
But that's an opinion. Right. Like that's a, an evalu- evaluation of a certain set of events and communications and facts that occurred. No one is disputing the meetings right. uh, that occurred. In fact, I would argue, looking at Mr. Wernick's statement and Ms. Wilson-Raybould's, the essence of those meetings was accurately reflected in both. It's a common statement about what happened in those meetings. And so it's, and this is where we may find a public inquiry is a useful tool, Mm -hmm. is this independent evaluation of what those meetings actually meant and that question of propriety. But so the thing that struck me is indeed with respect to the facts is how common they are. Um, I I would nitpick with one uh, fact that I believe uh, Lisa Ray pulled out in her questioning of Jody Wilson-Raybould before the committee. And that was in regards to when the clerk knew about the SNC-Lavalon decision. It was the clerk um, had a statement in his remarks that it was substantially later. And in one of Jody Wilson-Raybould's accounts, it was very early on in September that the clerk was present in a meeting in which she uh, raised the issue. Mm. So that that being perhaps the only inconsistency that I would note between the the two accounting of events. And and there's some suggestion, although not clear, that when the matter had been was communicated to Madame Drouin, that it may have been passed up. Uh, to the court. And that's the deputy minister. The deputy minister of justice, yeah. Yeah, because there there becomes a mystery uh, very early on in Jody Wilson-Raybould's remarks about how other departments had, namely finance, became aware of of, uh, her decision on on SNC and that finance sort of gave gave her a ring unexpectedly. Well, it's interesting, especially because, I I mean, there was a... The the public prosecution service can sometimes be very tight-lipped about things. There was a recent case where there was a, a French missionary priest who had served in, in various parishes in Nunavut, who, it turns out, had been molesting children, as unfortunately happens all too often, uh, and had gone back to France, and there was a sort of process towards extraditing him yeah. that the public prosecution service eventually gave up on, but did notify no one, to the point that the, the premier of Nunavut was writing the prime minister asking about this months after the case had been abandoned. In fact, it just became public like oh, a week or two ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if the public prosecution service wants to be quiet, it can be very quiet. Yes. So it is pretty remarkable that the finance and a bunch of these other actors were able to kind well, of... Well, but there is a plausible explanation sure. given the depth of contact between SNC Lavalin and various offices mm-hmm. of government. Yes. But they're notified on September 4th that there's no agreement going to be... Uh, negotiated and they get on the phones. Right. And so the interesting question is going to be, and one of the things I think either the Justice Committee uh, or the uh, public inquiry should explore is what communications were had between SNC Lavalin and all of these actors uh, in the, uh, the various offices, the PCO, the minister's office, and the prime minister's office. Uh, you know, and then what were they saying to one another? Right. Um, and and what communication was going back and forth by email? Um, you know, how did Mr. Chin know to pick up the phone on September 6th to make this call? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that's the finance minister's chief of staff. Yes, fine, yeah. chief of staff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I was. Uh, it, I I also noted it's funny how he he really first of all like I think he had more or less conceded as you say the factual basis yeah. and said. I think there were three conversations I can think of that she might characterize as as pressure and said I was explaining context was, was his way of, of putting it. I personally think I'm imagining this conversation 
and say, you know, just for context, 9,000 people will lose their jobs and we're going to lose the election. Or well, rather, you're going to lose the election. I'm, of course, Yeah, and, and this is where even in Mr. Wernick's recitation of what happened, although Ms. R- Wilson-Raybould is more detailed, mm-hmm. um, you know, when he's talking about the fact that her colleagues are concerned about this, yeah. you know, what is the clerk of the Privy Council doing talking to another yes. minister of government about the feelings of members of parliament and other cabinet ministers? Yes. yes. You know, uh, how is he carrying water in that way? And this is where I, you know, I'm really uh, concerned about politicization, not partisanship. Right. Partisanship, you know, is an, sometimes a nasty impulse that we all give into uh, periodically. But that appears to be a premeditated choice to be a political actor. To be right. When he makes those co- made and, call. And I think we, we've more or less shaded over into Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony <laughs> at this point. But um, one thing she said was that the clerk specifically said there's an election in Quebec right now. Yeah. like And, and things of, of that nature that I think that is, I mean, the, the, the clerk is supposed to have political antenna. I, I'm That is entirely fair. Uh, but to bring that up as a sort of frontline consideration in a, a prosecutorial decision is, is where, if he had said that in the context of an infrastructure decision of some kind, but, that would not be a problem as but, much. Okay, I, I, want, I want to point two things out. The higher up you go in the civil service, the more developed you expect um, civil servants' political antennas yeah, yeah, I will be. I agree with that, yeah. Um, however, for the clerk to be raising a provincial election... And the political considerations around a provincial election, which is not under his purview whatsoever in my mind. It is one thing if he is raising political considerations for the federal government as uh, an, an, an entity. I mean, who but, is, who but is the, the Premier of Quebec is the, a policy consideration for the federal government, though? No. I think so. No, it's not, because that comes down to democratic choice. It is, but it is it, it has impacts. Like, I think it's not... In and of itself, like, I mean, I was just saying a minute ago, I think it's inappropriately political. Like, I don't well, know, I'm disagreeing with you. <laughs> so if, if the premier of happen. Quebec had been a true separatist and right. the clerk's analysis was, let's sink SNC-Lavalin so that he loses, you know, so that the economy craters prior to the election, would we consider that an acceptable statement? I don't think so. I mean, here is, so here is where I think those statements morph along. It's perfectly appropriate for the clerk to say, I believe, uh, that if SNC-Lavalin is convicted, one of the consequences will be that they may have to shut down Mm -hmm. and there will be 9,500 jobs uh, lost as a result of that. Now, we're getting away from the dispute over the accuracy of that statement. I'm not convinced it's true. I'm not convinced the work won't happen. But that's it. That's full stop. It's when you get into... And the political impact of that will be, or your colleagues are really concerned about it, right. that's when I think it becomes unduly political. Right. And, and we, the political impact of a provincial liberal government well, will be. Yes. And like, that's, it's, that's it's one where, step further yeah. for me. And like, for me, it goes, that kind of shaded over into, like, are you trying to defend a friendly government in yes. Quebec? In which case that becomes, and a, the opposite would have helped you, yeah. I think, trying to torpedo an unfriendly one. If he had had this discussion around, I don't know, let's say... I, I can't name a big company in Ontario just off the top of my head that is uniquely Ontario in the same way. Morneau Chappelle, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know, like De- Deco Labels. Uh, Deco Labels <laughs> is going to go under, you know, and like, in that, you know, this will really hurt Doug Ford. That would be an issue. So, yeah, I think that 
according to Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony, that there are real concerns. So, do you guys? So this was raised in question period today, uh, and I think probably will be raised tonight at this emergency debate that is happening. Uh, that's also going on. Forgot to mention that. Uh, can Michael Wernick remain the clerk of the Privy Council, kind of under this cloud? Can he? Uh, well, as long as the Prime Minister isn't dismissive. Um, should he? I think not. One of the... So, I'm not 100% familiar with it because it's such new legislation or it's such a new mechanism. Um, but uh, Karina Gould, or Minister Gould, uh, recently unveiled sort of the national... Um, Right. Accounting of federal, uh, sorry, of uh, foreign interference during the election. And it substantively leans on senior members. So, sort of. Are you talking about the protocol, the response protocol? Yes. Yeah, okay. And it leans on the clerk and other senior uh, and other deputy ministers of various. Global affairs, public safety. um, Defense? Not defense. No? No. Global affairs, public safety. uh, Ooh, this is going to kill me. Come back to me. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, easily looked up. Um, but it relies on trust in the civil service, and, and sp- very specifically those civil servants. Um, and to have uh, Elizabeth May calling for his resignation um, in her one question in question period today, I do think speaks volumes, um, not, not to pump her tires too much. <laughs> Um, but this there, there is, were NDP questions about this too. The, there, there absolutely was. But this is reasonably out of character for her of all people um, to be calling yes. for resignation. That is true. So I, I think that tends to speak volumes about where we're at. On I mean, this. my my thinking on this was if you're putting the clerk of the Privy Council in the position where the credibility of the government hinges in large part on people believing his account or on a former minister's account. That is an untenable position for a public servant to be mm-hmm. in. And he needs to remove himself from that yeah. situation. Like, it's yeah, just... even if there were contradictions, you're right. You know, put, stacking him up against political actors As, uh, it makes him a or political B. actor, right? Yeah, like, makes him a political actor. actor. Yeah. yeah. So it just seems inappropriate for him to continue in that role at this point. So, uh, but to, we'll the see what point, happens. <laughs> to the point of can. Yes, he can, as long as the prime minister says. Of course. So. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. There are a few recourse mechanisms to remove him. I, tr- I truly think like I, his days really have to be numbered. Like He either resigns or is removed. So, like, so this is where, I mean, one of my other issues with it comes up is um, it was floated that he is near retirement. Yes. And so perhaps that uh, goes towards explaining um, the color that he inserted into his comments. Seems like a really bad idea to sort of harm the credibility of your office <laughs> yeah. on your way out. I don't know. Right. Yeah, it seems. This to is be... why I'm not clerk of the Privy Council. I guess. <laughs> yes, it, it would tend to lean towards an arsonist approach in your your final months of burning down the credibility of the institution you've ostensibly fought to protect. Because no one, no one's really thought of. I think I think a lot of people in and around the Ottawa bubble were like, "Yeah, Wernick is pretty tight with these guys," but you know, clerks have been pretty tight with their governments before. It's of not not a criminal offense. <laughs> So, and people, it was, it was fine. You know, people sort of saw it as, as not, un, not abnormal. That I think has been crossed. And I think unfortunately in a way that will, will really harm the credibility of the office in the future. And, so. and I would note just for continuity sake, that this is not the first senior official at PCO that has sort of gone out the door in this way, lest we forget the uh, national security intelligence advisor, Daniel Jean. Right. Who also had questions of... Who is another official who is on the uh, response panel? 
or the the protocol. Well, the NSIA is, yeah, but the NSA is an office. Yeah. Yes, but it's no Mr. longer Trump. Daniel Shah. No, I know. Yes, um, who's since taken his leave, <laughs> but around the India scandal. Yes. Um, so there was questions of his partisanship and impropriety in his conduct, um, and ultimately, Which I think very the, thoroughly covered on this show. Ultimately, so. I think the committee. Didn't absolve him, but did not pass judgment on him um, based on the circumstances. But nonetheless, he was thrust into an unfortunate uh, set, set of circumstances and was sort yeah. of forced to fight for his uh, for his position. So, Joe Dawson Rabel's testimony, which will now come to formally. <laughs> uh, she spoke for half an hour uh, and then was questioned for something like... Was it over half an hour? 40 minutes? It was like 30, 35. Yeah, yeah it was a little more than 30. Um, but... Her, yes, at any rate, uh, it was supposed to be half an hour, went a little over, and then she was questioned until about 7 p.m. The committee started at about 3, 3, 3.40 or so. So she was there for, for quite a while. Yeah. No breaks. She was asked repeatedly if she wanted a break and kept saying, no, I'm good. I'd rather actually just do this in one Get shot and go home. <laughs> <laughs> Which I sympathize. Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was it was a long, long meeting. Um, so... What did what did you make of it? I thought it was like she went her whole statement to begin with, just incredibly precise, going through in very very great detail, um, exactly which phone calls, meetings, emails, and texts with between other offices in the cabinet and to some extent the clerk of the privy council, uh, and then her office and her, and to the degree to which she felt those were inappropriate. I think in terms of new information. Um, the extent to which the finance minister and his staff was involved in this was not part of this conversation before yesterday. And exactly. now there are you know three people, the finance minister himself, Bill Morneau, Ben Chin, who we've talked about briefly, uh, his chief of staff, and Justin Toe, his deputy chief of staff, all come out in this opening statement and are named as having had inappropriately political discussions about non-grant prosecution. Um, beyond that, it was ground i think that had been covered by by the clerk though as we've discussed in a very very different light and i think she said i personally i mean i'm a new democrat i think it's not a surprise that i believe her and i believe her interpretation of events but it was quite convincing and i think it had the ring of truth and i think she looked extremely credible presenting it so i think what happened here uh i've got a tremendous memory i couldn't have done this over four months i think what happened here is that Ms. Wilson-Raybould had her meeting with the Prime Minister on September 17th and the clerk and realized there was something extraordinary going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And from that point forward, much as lawyers are inclined anyways when we we deal with clients, um, entered into the memo to file exercise that every time she had an interaction with respect to this file, with respect to this matter, she did a memo to file. And we all do it when we've got troublesome clients. The client that we're concerned is going to either be unhappy with the result or is going to take us to the Bar Society. We docket the file really good. And it is apparent to me from the depth of detail that she was able to provide, um, including you know exact quotes mm-hmm. uh, from text messages and phone calls and meetings, um, that she was in the memo to file period uh, for those four months. Hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and the other part is, is that what she recited was actually remarkably consistent uh, throughout in terms of tone and tenor. Yeah. Um, we also, in addition to realizing the extent of the 
uh, involvement of the finance minister's office, it also became clear that there were a much wider range of actors from the prime minister's office Mm -hmm. who were involved in this, including the prime minister's chief of staff. Uh, But more importantly, and, and two folks I think should have stopped this, Elder Marquez and Matthew Bouchard, who are both lawyers mm-hmm. um, and frankly should have known better because our code of ethics, you know, I think makes pretty clear about the duties of prosecutors. And at a minimum, even though they might not come from that background, they should understand uh, the role of the prosecutor in these matters. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, during all of this, I mean, so as, as Evan Solomon tried to dub it Witness Wednesday, <laughs> um, we we were simultaneously seeing uh, Michael Cohen's testimony that morning, and then Jody Wilson Raybould's uh, in the evening. Who's Michael Cohen for context? Everyone knows who Michael Cohen is. Uh, the get her done fixer lawyer for uh, Prime Donald Trump's Trump, lying lawyer <laughs> for, for President Trump over uh, over a decade. Um, but he he was testifying before Congress. But there's, I think, one of the more interesting parallels here. Um, because there are certainly a lot of different parallels to different actors in the Trump government that I think you can make, or the Trump administration. Oh, they'll uh, lo- they're going to love to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's perhaps one of the most damning things here, is you have a liberal government who is w- would like to believe themselves to be the furthest thing in the Western liberal order from the Trump administration. Yep. Um, but you have a scandal here that is lit up like a firework in the course of two weeks from start to finish and has seen perhaps more damning testimony um, than anything that has occurred in uh, the Trump uh, administration with with the exception of in the Trump administration, and, and this is perhaps worse for the Trudeau government, is that it's been, you know, reasonably senior figures, but it hasn't been members of his cabinet testifying against his actions. Uh, which is which is frankly incredibly difficult um, for it's it's a very difficult position for Trudeau to be in. But but to draw the parallel case, and it came to mind when you were describing how uh, Jody Wilson Raybould felt the need to document her her interaction. Seemingly, was James Comey's testimony to essentially the same effect, to being approached right. inappropriately and asked for loyalty by Donald Trump. And then feeling the need to effectively document all of his communications henceforth. Yeah. And ultimately uh, resulting in the appointment of a uh, special counsel in the case of the United States. And in the case of Canada, we'll see. We'll see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) To be be determined where this ultimately ends up. Yeah. Um, But just the, the accelerated nature and the rate at which it's happening in Canada, I think, is incredibly notable. I, I abhor making comparisons to the United States, particularly on this podcast, because I think it's comparisons to, the, uh, to American politics yes. are, are too often cited in our media. Um, but nonetheless, there are some like necessary parallels to be made yeah. here. But, you know, and what's also struck me as you make that uh, comparison is, in fact, of Mr. Comey-related communications, which in his book, which it really were ambiguous uh, in terms of telling. There, there definitely were two readings. I don't see the same degree of ambiguity here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is no equivalent of Mr. Butts's testimony, well, we have to have some interference here. <laughs> yeah, that, that to me, that was the most single damning. There, there is no way 
to do this that doesn't involve some interference. It's the light treason joke from Arrested <laughs> Development. Like. Um, or, you know, the chief of staff saying, well, we, you know, if you're uncomfortable, we can get op-eds written yeah. in support of you. Um, uh, or, you know, even his own, the, the lawyers involved. It's just, the, the, the statements aren't nearly as clear uh, in in Comey's recitation of things, and and that's what struck me as the most astonishing thing. You know, breaking away from you know the the comparison is uh, how unambiguous these actors were mm-hmm. about their desire to get S and C uh, out of this prosecution. Yeah. Well, and it seems like it was really everything on the table in the sense that they were doing this, and at the same time having consultations about revisions to the integrity regime, which we spoke about last yeah. time. Uh, so that that's another thing that came out since, I guess. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So they seem to be trying to amend it. I think so it came out. Ten year ban is not automatic. And I think it came out based on like an eight month old A tip that was finally yeah. uh, completed and submitted, and the Who? journalist was like, "Oh, gee, this is handy." Whom among us does not love a well timed A tip? Yes. That's, but that's you good. know, to be honest, it is you know, from a practical political perspective, having had the conversation with Ms. Wilson Raybould on September 17th. Can I interject slightly yeah. about that conversation? I remember very clearly in the, when she was talking, it's one of the, the real just brutal features of this testimony was it, during that meeting she recounts, looking at the Prime Minister in the eye and saying, are you telling me to inappropriately interfere in this prosecution? Oh, no, 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 no! Just yeah. get it done, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> but knowing that she, and she conveyed to people on a number of occasions right around that time, right. this is a decision. Okay, she's made a decision. There is another avenue. It's not like changing this policy is actually very hard. Mm-hmm. It's not a regulation. It's not a statute. It's purely a, a matter of a government procurement policy. So what I've seen is the pushback on that perspective um, is that if the they were convicted nonetheless under the charges at hand, and even if they were let off the hook via Canada's internal process, the SNC would suffer ramifications internationally for having been convicted in Canada with other partner countries recognizing okay. the Canadian conviction against them and their respective integrity regimes. I see. And, and that's possible. But then, you know, we've got the other issue, of course. Is there a target in the Jacques Cartier uh, uh, bridge investigation in for Quebec, fraud? Provincially, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's also the McGill's Hospital one, which I don't think... Yeah, no, but yet. SNC was not the target. They, oh, okay. uh, it, it was, was one of their executives. Right. Uh, Who have is, all pled guilty or... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So SNC, but SNC is a target uh, in the Jacques Cartier bridge. Okay. And that, that I think, came out relatively recently yeah. as well from yeah. the... Well, the RCMP investigation, but it's in Quebec? I'm not certain if it's RCMP or Sûreté. Sûreté, okay, yeah. yeah. Oh, that makes, that would make more sense, yeah. I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Quebec is well known for doing the, this type of investigation as of late. They've certainly cracked down. Well, on and the, they had their whole Charbonneau Commission that, a couple years I mean. ago. With, and the, with been, SNC, I mean, you control FSNC in the Charbonneau Commission reports, and just your whole bar lights up yellow. <laughs> I mean, it's, and interestingly enough, Premier Legault did not answer any questions about the Jacques Cartier investigation while it, in the same press conference where we, he was calling for the federal government to uh, give SNC relief. Uh, yeah. Under remediation One interesting point uh, that is sort of tangential to Jonas and Rebels, but very relevant to SNC in Quebec, is I think there's been an assumption in federal politics and in Anglophone media that there is a really lockstep opinion behind SNC Lavalin in Quebec. And I think that is, there is more support in Quebec to, to sort of find a, a deal out and protect the, the quote unquote crown jewel. 
Um, but there, there was polling on this that showed sort of opinion by province and across much of the country. Uh, it was people thought, you know, let the prosecution go ahead. The two exceptional regions were Atlantic Canada, kind of oddly, and Quebec, where the split was pretty much exactly 50-50, which, you know, that's it's much higher than in other provinces or lower, I guess, depending on which side. But it's not monolithic by any means. Yeah. It's, in fact, pretty Un- much the exact opposite of monolithic. Unlike unlike the perspectives presented in the Quebec media. Well, that's which the thing. Are... Is I, I've been really clear that, like, yes, the Quebecor editorial line is that we have to protect sort of champions of Quebec industry, but not every person who lives in Quebec subscribes 100% to the opinions of the Quebecor editorial well, board. <laughs> and I believe National Post uh, today did a recounting of the various sort of, excuse me, editorial stances. And they definitely weren't, it wasn't unified by any means. No, and like, no. I don't think, it's once again, there's like, it's, I don't like, you know, people talk Quebec bashing a lot, and I think there, there is some of that. Yes. And I think there is a sort of, like, the the narrative that everyone in Quebec thinks this is good is there's a sort of underlying, well, Quebecers are okay with corruption thing, which I, I think this, this is a whole other carton of eggs and whatever. But clearly it is not a monolithic opinion, and I think the sort of reading of it as monolithic was quite lazy. Yeah, and uh, they should have thought a little harder about that. And I think politicians, too, I think, thought, or overestimated the support for SNC Lavalin in this situation. Should have thought I, a lot I don't think it. Quebecers uh, are any more tolerant of the type of behavior that's being alleged here than any other group of, of citizens. Uh, you know, paying for prostitutes. Yes, for his son. I'm sorry, they're not going to accept that any more than Atlantic Canadians or Ontarians. No, no, no one is like an Uday and Kusei fan, you yeah. know, and like I don't think the Qaddafi sons are really any better. So, it's a... yeah, I mean, the the other point here is that like the no one is really arguing, like not not many people, frankly, in uh, the English press is arguing that SNC deserves everything that's coming to it. Um, I, I think these narratives have sort of all got intermixed, um, where I think a lot of people do have a lot of time for deferred prosecution agreements, and that there are reasonably strong rationales underpinning them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is entirely aside, and the whole jobs question, like Heather Malik was presenting, oh my god, a, a perspective on this, a Toronto Star columnist, where like I want my government to do absolutely everything it can for the jobs, 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 jobs. Which seems to be the only line the liberals have managed to yeah, pull and together. I mean, look, like, and jobs and pensions, right? That was the other one. Yes. And this is a government that has been called upon to change the Companies Creditors Act uh, and the Bankruptcy Act several times to put workers' pensions at the top of the list of creditors and neglected, or not neglected, refused to do so several times and is now lecturing people about pensions. Um, it's just, and then, you know, the serious bankruptcy where there were, I believe, 12,000 jobs from Sears across the country. Uh, and then there's the GM closure, where who knows what's going to happen to that. Obviously, job losses in Alberta and the oil and gas sector. It's just like, come on. Who do they think they're kidding with this? Yeah, it's not terribly unique. Um, but like the fa- like, every- everyone can appreciate that governments would be sensitive to job losses. No, yeah, well, sure, right? um, <laughs> like, but, that's but it's fine. But, but don't be selective about it. At then. a certain point, though, it becomes a question of and how far are you willing to go to protect those jobs? And that's where the line was. Well, yes, and like people are not saying, you know, I'm I'm mad they worked too hard to protect the jobs. It's, I'm mad they broke the law. <laughs> and so the criminal code lists the factors that are being considered, and I'm sure Ms. Wilson Raybould. I'm sure the deputy, uh, uh, the director of public prosecutions 
looked at them and Ms. Wilson-Raybould looked at them. And they specify things like contrition, compliance, yes. all those other sorts of factors. And then they have this catch-all other factors and later on specifically exclude national economic interests. And so from that, I draw the conclusion that these economic factors are something to be looked at in the regular course of business, mm -hmm. but there's certain sorts of offenses that we don't look at them at. Yeah. And corruption of foreign public officials and fraud are... Uh, fact are, are those type of offenses. So how do we reconcile the fact that the the narrative seems to be that DPAs were put into the budget bill in order to get this all done in time for SNC, um, but then it's dubious whether, or it's largely seen to be dubious as to yeah. whether or not SNC would qualify under the DPA Act that was supposedly tailored for it. Because I think they are all casting at straws, trying to you know yeah. do whatever they can to try, try to get some relief. And, and the other part, I'll, I'll say, quite frankly, in evaluating the analytic talent of this particular government, <laughs> they don't seem to have paid a lot of attention to the details. Well, it, there's also, I think people have brought up the, and I think Tanya brought this up earlier, is the OECD anti-bribery conventions. I think they realize, they maybe drafted something that would, SNC would have qualified for it and realized, oh no, we have to like... No, I think, they, I think they literally imported the yes, provisions the from the OECD, which is the norm. Yeah, you know, it's not like uh, everybody else doesn't have this these type of provisos. Mm -hmm. the, the OECD convention has literally these factors, and yeah. then it's uh, verbatim. You know, this exclusion. Yeah, yeah. no, uh, yeah, but I think it, it must have been that they drafted something, and realized that they had international obligations, yeah. dropped the language in, and then didn't think too hard about what that would actually. Well, be no, I I'm going to go even cry to my point that I don't think they pay much attention to the details. <laughs> um, I think they literally did a copy and paste because they love international treaties. And, uh, and brought it across. I think it is believable. So my, my challenge with either of those perspectives is reconciling the difference between justice drafting the legislation and the political level approving it. That where if justice or if the uh, people in, I mean, who, who would have started the Legislative draft. So well, would have I was been... going to say the finance minister's office or PMO, maybe PCO sort of got the ball rolling on this. Criminal code is a justice-owned document. Yes. So I think, but I find it very difficult to believe that anybody told justice, draft a provision that's going to get SNC-Lavalin out of the woods. Um. I suspect the instruction would have been something of the sort. We think it's important that a remediation provisions be included with respect to these large-scale offenses mm -hmm. in order to protect, uh, you know, uh, businesses whose uh, devastation would cause significant economic impact on a wide range of people. So then, typically, the people who would play the challenge function on that legislation would be the minister's office staff. Uh, in the office of the minister and attorney general who would review that legislation and maybe not say it explicitly but say like "Ooh, that seems a little tight let's can we weaken that can we do this here how can we t tweak this legislation to fit our legislative intent uh, be that with snc or any other case but the minister's office wasn't on side with this so what seemingly um, it seems to have got pushed through somewhat against their will um, maybe there was some cursory sign-off along the way because ultimately the criminal code is her responsibility or was her responsibility. Um, but legislatively, it was carried by uh, Minister Morneau. Mm -hmm. um, and then when it went to Senate committee, it uh, she apparently refused to testify or submit herself to committee scrutiny on it. 
And it was instead the head of uh, PWGSC who went, I believe, and the... Called PSPC now. Or, PSPC, yeah. Yeah. Well, the Public Services keep, Procurement. Keep, keep changing names on me. Um, and the sec- uh, pro- and her parliamentary secretary. Um, so, I mean, there's sort of this weird tension in the story as to how much she consented to the creation of this and where she stopped supporting it along the way. And perhaps that was the recipe for it being drafted in such a fashion as to not work in the way it was intended for mm. SNC Lavalon's benefit or Lavalon's benefit. Yeah. Back to the health king. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, um, and I can only look back to my own prior experience. I do know that when memorandum cabinet would go forward with these things, the minister who owned the statute would have to sign off on it, mm-hmm. uh, literally physically sign off yeah. on it. Um, so, and it would still surprise me that if the minister of justice wasn't signing on the dotted line, agreeing to uh, these sorts of provisions. Uh, you know, you've got to live to standards. And I, I, I suspect Justice's response would have been, we're going to the standard that the rest of the world uses mm-hmm. on these things. And to go anything any further would, re- I mean, we've got obligations to comply with these uh, right. international corruption regimes too. Mm-hmm. And we signed them. Um, to go any further would leave us not in compliance with the things we have signed. Mm-hmm. That makes a perfect amount of sense. Anything else we want to touch on for her testimony? I mean, the questions I thought, just broadly speaking, I think the NDP and conservative side was basically, uh, would you say that you were extremely brave in, in coming <laughs> forward to do this? Uh, perhaps one of the bravest of all time. Would, would you care to comment on that? And similar, you know, to sort of enhance her credibility. The liberal... I side of questioning was interesting for its nastiness. Uh, I think they, it's really worth saying that people were not really sure what she was going to say. She walked into the room, all the MPs filed in a little later, they sit down, she says, I'm going to do my 30 minutes now. I was okay. And then within about 30 seconds, she had said, uh, actually, it's literally the the second paragraph right after the, the land acknowledgement. For a period of approximately four months between September and December 2018, I experienced a consistent and sustained effort by many people within the government to seek to politically interfere in the exercise of prosecutorial discretion in my role as the Attorney General of Canada in an inappropriate effort to secure a deferred prosecution agreement with SNC-Lavalin. It's just like, okay, well, so I, you, you can see staffers <laughs> just tearing up, like, prepared questions. It's like, yeah. well, okay, that's I the ball to, game. I couldn't watch the whole thing uh, because I had a client meeting. I watched the first sort of 10 minutes and went, wow, she's laying the hammer down. I got to get the transcript. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was pretty, it, it was pretty impressive. It was the political equivalent of starting Star Wars with the explosion of the Death Star. Yeah. Like there was no, nothing held back initially. Absolutely yeah. nothing. Just dove right in. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, just, just remark on the liberals because this is sort of The poker faces were great. I will give them that. This They're is just not, not, a, they were just completely stone faced. I, I was sort of perplexed by some of the choices as to who they put um, to ask questions, uh, including the parliamentary secretary to finance was an incredibly well, interesting... And I commented, I've commented on this before, and, I, and this actually happened with the Justice Committee, is Randy Boissonneau was there again and is the, the parliamentary secretary, uh, Jennifer, Jennifer McConnell, is that her yeah. name? Uh, was there the parliamentary secretary to finance. The Liberals have a rule that they break sort of at their convenience that parliamentary secretaries yeah. are not to sort of intervene in committee proceedings. Um, like I said, they sort of ignore this kind but, of whenever they but, want. But when there's so many of them, how could they <laughs> staff a committee? If they well, they're they're going to run out of people, yeah. 
But that was interesting. It just for it. It really does look bad, and I, th- I don't think Randy Boston came off particularly well. No, um, I, I mean, mean to be fair, that is partly because of society's deep anti bald prejudices, uh, where we we just look like villains. It is very unfair. That's just typecasting. Uh, many of us are very nice people, but that is just kind of the way it the, is. The, this you know? this will make more sense if you see a picture of Laurent. I'm sure people sort of know what I look like. Um. At any rate, so I feel bad for him. Uh, but there were other bald role models there at committee. Nathan Cullen did a, did a great job. Much more positive sort of impression. Before before we go down this particular <laughs> rabbit hole, I, I would suggest we, we leave it there. It's one we're, of those like, hairless, uh, <laughs> naked mole rat holes. <laughs> we're, we're, we're at just over an hour. So I, I think it's we've, we've covered nearly everything. I'm, I'm certain we could discuss it for another yes, hour. We yes. probably could, yes. Um, at length. But we'll, we'll have to leave it there. You have a plane to catch. Indeed. Thank you. Oh, yes. That is true. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, my pleasure. Today. Yeah. Really. It was, uh, yeah. And I, I like I said before, it really... The timing and we could not have worked out better, and uh, we could not have found a better person. Thank you so much. Thank you, my pleasure. And uh, thank you for everyone for listening. You can follow us at Short Pants Pod. Uh, that will do it for us this week. And good night.